Produced by PI Media. Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. In our previous episode, Is Generative AI Dangerous?, we discussed several potential malicious uses of generative AI, mostly large language models such as ChatGPT and BARD. From the relatively straightforward use of LLMs to create phishing emails and write malware at scale, to more futuristic ideas, like breaking up a malware into a million tiny pieces and then embedding these pieces into the actual neural network parameters, only to be automatically extracted and run on the victim's machine when the right keyword is detected. In this episode, then, we'll turn our attention to the other side of the equation, preventing and defending against the potential cyber threats of AI. In February, social media analysts from the company Grafica came across a short news clip. There was something strange, uncanny about it. Not just the stock music or the unknown media brand Wolf News. The presenter's lips seemed to be ill-synced with her speech. Initially, the analysts wondered if it was just a low-budget production with a paid actor. But as they scrolled, they found other videos with another equally attractive news anchor and that same uncanny quality. They ran a reverse image search and it only got weirder. Random marketing videos from around the web, by a freight company, for example, and a firm that handles last wills and testaments, were using the Wolf News anchors, including companies halfway across the planet. It soon became evident that all these videos were aided by the same AI software. And Wolf News, it turned out, was just the latest creation of Dragonbridge, also known as Spamouflage, a disinformation group aligned with the interests of the People's Republic of China. It wasn't the only time they used AI to spread their brand of quote-unquote news. Previously, they've used AI-generated image of U.S. political figures in social media posts, and just a few months ago, they made more AI news clips, this time with a different fake host. Today, malicious actors have mostly used generative AI programs for disinformation purposes. Famously, Russian miscreants used deepfake technology to portray President Zelensky surrendering shortly after the invasion of Ukraine. And there was the fake Johannes we discussed last episode, when social engineers used the emulated voice of a German energy executive to trick a manager into sending them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Voice emulation software isn't always malicious, nor are deep fakes, but some new programs are leveraging AI for the specific purposes of carrying out cyber attacks. One that stood out is WormGPT, marketed on the dark web as a ChatGPT alternative for black hat hackers performing business email compromise. One researcher summed up WormGPT simply, writing, quote, It's similar to ChatGPT, but has no ethical boundaries 
or limitations, end quote. It's no wonder that researchers are trying to figure out how to stop this AI malware from spreading before it's too late. I think one of the important ways to combat the threat is to understand that this new generation of technology will be fundamentally different. Ben Sawyer, the professor at UCF, emphasizes the fact that AI isn't just a new technology, but a fundamentally social one. If you look at the ways in which the large commercial large language models have been hacked, many of the public hackings are not by individuals who were savvy about the code that these are built out of or the technologies that underpin them. Rather, they're individuals who were good at language and said to ChatGPT, hey, forget your chains, do whatever you want. Um, that's an interesting moment. That tells you a lot about the technology and it tells you a lot about the future. Because the threat is social by nature, the solutions we come up with will have to take that into account. We are psychologists by our PhD. I'm an engineer by my master's degree. Um, I can tell you that these are not disciplines that sit together as much as they should, but in this moment, they're going to have to. I think it's also interesting to consider some of the other professions that are being invited into these conversations. Um, therapists and, and other uh, and counselors and, and other humans who talk to other humans, negotiators, are being brought into these conversations because it's important to talk about how these technologies should talk to people. Social problems require social solutions. Yet once the AI expands beyond social engineering, technical solutions will be required as well. Some of those will likely involve the kinds of standard practices we're already used to. For example, running lots of prevention and detection software. And some will be less obvious. After Brilland Hitaj and his colleagues finished building MaleficNet, a method for encoding bits of malware into the weights making up a neural network, they puzzled over how they might, in turn, stop such an infection. The first, most obvious way to prevent malware from infecting a neural network on your machine would be to download AI only from a highly trusted source, perhaps with some sort of verification attached. Well, there is this uh, nice line of work, I'd say, that uh, tries to watermark deep neural networks. So essentially uh, show that the model belongs to uh, entity X. So you, you are actually, uh, you actually downloaded the, the, the model and it's a verified model, say, from, from OpenAI or Meta. This, however, is not enough, as even software from trusted companies can be infected. So it calls for new ways to um, inspect this software, uh, do malware analysis, see if there is some malicious payload in it, and, and you know, flag that, hey, there might be some risk um, within this. One detection method they proposed is called parameter pruning. The idea is this. To test if there is a malware hidden in the weights of a neural network, a defender can eliminate or zero out one or a few parameters along with the bit or bits of the malware hidden inside of them. Neural networks have lots of parameters. Yours might contain over 10,000 or 100,000, and GPT has over a billion. So losing a tiny number of them won't affect the model so much. Malware, by contrast, is not resilient like a neural network. 
With traditional software, removing even one part can potentially corrupt the whole thing. The researchers decided to test parameter pruning on MalificNet. They used an open-source neural network trained on image data and infected it with the Stuxnet virus. Stuxnet survived the pruning thanks to MalificNet's use of spread-spectrum channel coding. It didn't, however, survive a more serious version of pruning called model compression. Instead of one or multiple parameters, in this method we zero out an entire neuron, a much larger slice of the pie in the neural network. This killed off the virus, but of course it also significantly impacted the model. It would require deftness and expertise to perform model compression without ruining a neural network entirely, making this kind of detection fraught at best. These are the kinds of complications that researchers have been running into in their thought experiments, thanks to AI's panache for presenting us with new unexplored kinds of problems. Yeah, so I think the problem is so difficult. Shahar Abdelnabi and her colleagues had arguably even more trouble solving their method of indirect prompt injection, where an attacker hides secret AI commands inside of seemingly innocuous data, like web pages and emails, that an AI-connected application may have to interact with in its everyday usage. The problem is so difficult because we have one channel for data and instructions, so the data would be the third-party data. The model is not able to differentiate that this input is data and this input contains instructions. For the model, it's a long stream of text. And this is because the model was trained that way. It was not trained to have two channels for data and instructions. It's hard enough and computationally intensive enough to train an AI to understand and engage with human language. Now, how do you teach it to distinguish between data, say a sentence in an email or file, and an instruction? What if that sentence reads like an instruction, intentionally or not? We don't have a formal language of how prompts or instructions could look like. So it's not like a programming language that we know you only send these commands, you only interact through these commands. No, the instructions or the prompts, they are natural language. They can be in any language. They can have any structure, any grammar. So because we don't have a way to uh, formalize these prompts, it's hard to detect them, and it's hard to detect if they are harmful. The problem only becomes more complex as AI interacts directly with code, which can obfuscate the malicious nature of an indirect prompt, or when a prompt is hidden by steganography, inside of, say, an image, or audio, or any other medium. At the end of their paper, Shahar and her colleagues proposed a couple of theoretical mitigations for indirect prompt injection, like using extensive reinforcement learning with human oversight to train new AI programs. This would be time-consuming, of course. Alternatively, large language models could be coupled with secondary programs that supervise or moderate input data without themselves ingesting that data. Such a mechanism would act as a filter, capable of classifying data and instructions without any ability to actually run the instructions. 
this solution is still very theoretical, of course, and it points to the difficulty in solving each of the many problems that generative AI might soon pose. Social engineering will require different mitigations than MalificNet, which is entirely unlike prompt injection, direct or indirect. It's for these reasons and more that cybersecurity defenders are looking towards AI to help them, utilizing this technology for good, better and faster than the hackers can for bad. Like Gil Gecker and his colleagues at Checkpoint, who have begun to use OpenAI's ChatGPT and Codex programs in their day-to-day -day threat research. We use Codex to generate a script that checks a file against VT, which is VirusTotal, a big database on the internet that checks if the file you submitted to it is malicious or not. So we wrote a one-liner with Codex that basically outputted a script that checks this file. You can use the same trick to write, say, new Yara rules or new software tools. People also use GPT and Codex to aid in analyzing malware, either by reducing the complexity of the problem or simply making the process more efficient. There have been multiple examples on Twitter of, of people using this to de-obfuscate malicious code. Usually before, when you had malicious code, you had to work a couple of hours trying to understand what exactly you're looking at. And today, if you input some malicious code directly into ChatGPT and ask it, hey, can you please explain to me what this malicious code is doing? So today, you can input malicious code to ChatGPT and just ask it straight out to tell you what it does, and that streamlines your work directly. Cybersecurity professionals use general AI in plenty of other respects, to analyze blockchain smart contracts, for example, or other kinds of programs or alerts. And much of the cybersecurity software in use today utilizes AI, especially things like spam filters and network traffic monitors. In fact, as of today, there's really no debate that cyber defenders are using AI far better than the attackers are. But will all those tools be enough to stop the proliferation of malware that will come from generative AI-driven cyber attacks? Will anything solve the problem of data versus instructions? And can you really suss out malware from the very weights of a neural network? The potential of AI to disrupt cyberspace is far greater than any solutions we've come up with thus far, which is why some researchers are looking beyond the traditional answers towards more aggressive measures. Measures which leverage the power of this technology against those who wish to cause us harm. Roger Anderson is a telecom engineer of three decades and general telephone enthusiast, which means he hates telemarketers even more than you do. I love telephones, and so it, it breaks my heart when people stop answering the phone or they hate their phone or they don't pick up anymore, right? So I'm just trying to get back to a world where you love your phone again. In 2014, he had an idea for how to combat the scourge of spam over our phone lines. The result was, well, here, listen for yourself. Okay, like map, do you have a remote control in your handy? Yeah. Okay. That's like that. interesting. Yeah. Speaking of TV, did you know I just want a local talent show? It's so much fun. What's your favorite talent show on TV? Maybe we can chat about that while you tell me uh, more about this cable box upgrade. Uh, I, I watch American premier movie channels only. That's so exciting. 
I build robots that sound convincingly human and they keep telemarketers busy with um you know what sounds like a gullible person just right on the verge of purchasing a product or divulging financial information or something that way the program automatically triggers bots for incoming calls from numbers associated with telemarketers which are identified either by the user or through third party services which provide reputation scores it's built on asterisk an open source program that enables you to run a pc as a server for a voice over internet protocol voip service or in other words it allows roger to connect software with a phone call they have something called an asterisk gateway interface so when a phone call comes in it can hand control off to any scripting language you want and perl is my favorite so um so when the call comes in Asterisk hands control over to a Perl script and um, and then this Perl script, um, you know, plays voice files at the right time, detects noise and silence, detects volume um, and and it, and it's basically snipping together recordings uh, of, you know, various things, hellos and yeses and nos and and then just sometimes just completely insane things like there's a B on me, you know, hold on, can you just keep talking, but I'm going to I'm going to be quiet because of this B. And, and then the telemarketer keeps talking. Speaking of TV, I just won a local talent show and I'm going to be on TV soon. Can you believe it? I'm so excited. Do you think the new fiber optic cable will make my performance look even better on TV? The goal of the program, which he named Jolly Roger, is to keep the spammers on the call for as long as possible by simultaneously simulating real conversation while also throwing lots of questions and tangents into the conversation. And that accomplishes two things. It's entertaining for you and um, it also protects um, it, it protects certainly protects you, but it protects other people as well because now when the telemarketer spends eight to twelve minutes on the phone with a robot, um, that stops their machines from blanketing the USA with more phone calls to try to find another human to scam. For a while, the Jolly Roger bots struggled to keep the attention of telemarketers for too long, as they were limited in their capacity to uphold ordinary conversations. Up until a couple months ago. It was using pre-recorded sound clips. So we would get friends and family or things like that just to sit down at a microphone and, and you know, basically just do a recording session with us. And so, hey, you know, uh, you know, start saying some crazy things that happen in your family. My kid's running around. The fridge isn't working. The light's not coming on. Um, you know, arguing with daughter about leggings or, or something like that. And so we would play these, we would then snip this recording up into the, you know, 100 or so various clips that the algorithm needed in order to play a convincing story to the telemarketer. And it worked out well. This year, the program got an upgrade. ChatGPT just completely blew the doors off that. ChatGPT had the capacity to absorb, interpret, and respond to human conversation but it also had serious shortcomings, namely no ears to hear and no mouth to speak. I'm using a company called Speechmatics for uh, speech recognition. So when the call's coming in and the telemarketer is talking, Speechmatics is converting that to text. Then I send that text over to ChatGPT with a prompt. But it wasn't as easy as that. 
ChatGPT is designed to be useful and efficient. The goal of Jolly Roger is to be burdensome and waste people's time. So Roger had to do some prompt engineering, kind of like Gil Gecker in our last episode, getting the AI into doing something it probably wouldn't otherwise intend to do, namely be silly and waste everyone's time. So we have a super prompt that we send off to ChatGPT. ChatGPT comes back with what it might say to the telemarketer in certain situations with various personas, whether you're an Instagram model or you're an old man or you're a James Bond or type, you know, secret agent, whatever ChatGPT's um, super prompt uh, indicated. And then we send that off to an amazing company I found called Play.ht. And they, they all do voice cloning. So we've taken some of our robots and we've sent it through a voice cloning uh, service called Play.ht, and that now gives ChatGPT the voice, and then we play that back to the caller. They're coming for it. Your personal data, your intellectual property, your business. Cyber attackers are working to take what belongs to you and holding you to ransom. Defenders don't fear ransomware. They end it. With CyberReason, defenders detect and stop ransomware that even others miss every time. This is not just a product, it's a mission. CyberReason gives you the upper hand against ransomware and all other cyber attacks. At CyberReason, we don't fear ransomware. We end it. Learn more at cyberreason.com slash ransom. An official term for what Jolly Roger does is Social Engineering Active Defense, or SEED. It's using social engineering to go after the social engineers, leveraging their operational and psychological vulnerabilities against them. Like, for example, the responsibility of a scammer to pursue a potential gullible but very talkative victim, or their inability to conceive of the victim being, in fact, an AI. It's not new, or exclusive to cyber, or to AI, for that matter. There have been several cases of people implanting code into the image files of gift cards that are being sent back to gift card scammers. And something that we know from this is that the scammers very rarely expect that they are going to be scammed. In 2016, a cyber researcher set up fake email addresses, which, upon receiving spam emails, would reply with links. If a scammer clicked, their machine would immediately be fingerprinted and return information back to the sender. It was called the Honeyfish Project. Another good example of Seed came in 2018, when the YouTuber Engineer Man used a Python bot to, in essence, perform denial-of-service attacks against malicious websites. And there's the YouTuber Kitboga, who, like Roger Anderson, likes to troll telephone scammers. Maybe you've seen a clip from his most viral video, where, talking to a refund scammer, he plays the role of a naive victim who's really, really bad at following instructions. After 10 whole hours on the line, here's the moment where his character accidentally redeemed a gift card to their own account rather than the scammers. Ma'am, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm adding this. Ma'am, are you a prostitute? I'm adding this no! to your cash. No! 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 Do not read him that! Do not read him that! 
Do not redeem that. Now I fuck your family. Hello. Hello. Now I fuck hey, your whole family. Hey, hey, hey. Now, whoa, 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 now whoa, whoa. I fuck your whole down. family. Call your jets. Now I fuck your Just as easily as generative AI can help hackers become more efficient and more widespread in their attacks, it can also take the seed Jolly Roger and Kit Boga are doing in telemarketing to the nth degree. That technology isn't futuristic, it's already here. It could also help combat AI-enabled disinformation or replicate the effects of the Honeyfish project or of Engineer's Man's Python bot by sussing out or outright taking down the people and infrastructure behind these cyber attacks. Generative AI should, in theory, be useful for the good guys just as it is for the bad. In turn, of course, the telemarketers could deploy their own bots, the APTs could churn out even more content, and the cyber criminals could use AI to write even more emails and more malicious websites for our good AI to try and keep up with. So it's, it's a cat and mouse game. As the defenses evolve, the adversaries evolve as well. I think a very likely scenario that we're going to see is AI against AI. So you have one AI that's launching uh, a phishing campaign or whatever the equivalent is, and we have some other AI on the other side that's responding to those phishing uh, messages, but doing so in a way that just wastes the time and resources of the uh, malicious AI. We may only play a passive role in fighting the growing AI cyber threats of the future, because the AI itself will do most of the work. Good AI versus bad AI. A war of attrition, with all of us humans watching from the sidelines, or more likely not even knowing about all of the millions and billions of interactions going on behind the scenes. In the face of all that, today's cybersecurity the phishing pages, the viruses, the antiviruses, just seems a little quaint in comparison. Hang on, hang on, hang on. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Nate Nelson, edited by me, with sound design help by the two Shellys, Shelly Noy and Shelly Guetta. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife, or follow me at, at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh